This week takes us to Kerrville, where a woman is violently attacked and set on fire. However, more bizarre than her actual murder is the fact that she may have known it was coming. This is episode 57 of Texas 1031. take a swig of this wine really quick. Okay. Hey everyone, this is Hannah. This is Texas 1031 and this is a Texas true crime podcast. Today I'm going to be telling you about the horrendous murder of Betty Stotts in Kerrville, Texas. I've literally tried to do this intro like eight times now, so wish me luck. Okay, so picture it. Kerrville, Texas, 1979. Joe and Betty Stotts are living in Kerrville with their four children, Roger, who is 15, Debbie, who is 20, Stephen, who is 21, and Ron, who is 22. According to two of Betty's children, Ron and Debbie, the Stottses were lower middle class when they were growing up, and the family didn't have a lot of extra money floating around. Because of this, the majority of the activities for the siblings centered around outdoor recreation, such as swimming, camping, or day trips to the river. Doesn't sound half bad to me. The siblings recall the town of Kerrville being very wholesome and friendly. It was the stereotypical town where everyone knows one another and the crime rate is incredibly low. Despite being relatively poor, the brothers and sister remember truly enjoying their childhoods. This is in part due to their mother, Betty. Betty was incredibly smart and just an overall great person and dedicated wife and mother. Betty was also very hardworking. She had two jobs. This is, this is good, guys. I don't know what the fuck this is. I tried to look it up. I still don't really fully understand it, but email me or, or, or whatever. Contact me if you know what it means. So she had one full-time job at the Texas Gold Stamp Redemption Center. Anyone? No? Me neither. And one part-time job at the Bolero Drive-In Movie Theater. Betty loved both of her jobs, but she was primarily known to people at the movie theater because she was such a joy to talk to and was an employee that just went above and beyond her regular responsibilities. Betty was a very petite woman and a very religious woman as well. Her compassion and sympathy for others really shined through when she spoke with family, friends, and even strangers while she met when she was working. Everyone remembers her as an excellent listener and a genuinely caring and interested person. In regard to being religious, however, Betty was the first to admit that Christianity wasn't always the perfect path and that there are other religions and lifestyles that will lead you to happiness and and fulfillment. She was very open-minded, self-aware, and a well-rounded person. Why is it that these are always the people that get fucking murdered, you know? Um, Answer, riddle me that, I don't know, people who murder. Additionally, Betty didn't solely subscribe to Christianity. She utilized tarot cards and tea leaves and countless other methods of, quote, non-Christian cultural and religious practices. And to some people, these rituals and practices will come into play later after her death. The Bolero Drive-In wasn't just a place of employment for Betty, but her children, Debbie and Roger, worked there as well. I've been to a drive-in before uh, a couple times in my life. I may have already talked about this on the podcast before, but oh well. Um, when I lived in Dallas, there was, and maybe still is, a drive-in right outside the city about 45 minutes. I think it was called the Galaxy Drive-In. Um, it looked incredibly old and worn down and super spooky. 
even though I think it was only built like in the early 2000s. Um, I don't recall what movie I saw when I went there one or two times, but I know it, I went with my mom both times. Um, when you drive up, there is this sketchy ass like play area. I guarantee you I've talked about this on the podcast before because I feel like Cassie would like something like this. Um, there's like this abandoned play area with these creepy old like paint chipped, you know, horses, like, you know, those, whatever the horses you can get on. And what am I talking about that like spring back and forth? Um, and they have like this like really gross golf putting green. Like I never, I, I don't think anyone's ever used it before. Um, anyway, everything looks like it survived a fucking tornado, which in Dallas, it very well could have for all I know. Uh, the confession or confession, whoa, the concession food was decent. I got like a hamburger and a funnel cake or some shit. I do specifically remember the signs being like, please don't bring your own snacks. Go support the concession stand, um, which I get it. That's how they really make money, especially when I tell you how much these fucking ticket prices were back then. Um, they used to make you use like speakers that you would put inside your car. But then I think when I went, you could like tune your radio to a certain channel or whatever. I don't know. It was very a very fun experience for sure. I highly recommend it if you get a chance to go. Just like don't go like in Texas in the summer or like Florida in the summer or really the majority of the country in the summer because of global warming. But, you know, 10 out of 10 would recommend. Anyways, back to the story. No one cares about me, right? On, hold on. I need another sip. I'm not editing these out because it really takes so much time. You have no idea. On June 17th, 1979, okay, this is the big day. Betty was scheduled to work that night with her son, Roger. The two arrived at the Bolero Theater around 7.30, 7.45 p.m., and Betty stopped to chat with her manager and get set up for the night. Around 8.30 that Sunday night, Betty reported to the booth she worked out of, similar to like a toll booth type system. People would drive up and pass her whatever the cost of a ticket was, which at the time, do you want to guess? Anyone? No, you're wrong. Tickets were $1.50 for each adult, and this is even better. Children under 12 got in free. Dog, how are they even making money? I don't know. I think I just hit the microphone. I'm sorry. Um, all right, Betty would write down the license plate number as well as the number of tickets sold per car, and that's kind of how she would calculate sales and the number of vehicles that entered. It was a basic system, but it worked. Um, I'm going to read this because I gave a shit enough to research it, so I'm going to mention it. The movie playing that night was titled Dirt, the synopsis on IMDb states, quote, I just had a pop-up of some bullshit that blocked what I was reading. <laughs> um, from motorcycles to swamp buggies, from Pikes Peak to Baja, California, dirt covers the world of off-road racing and competitions. There is humor, drama, and suspense in this lighthearted view of off-pavement competition. Children will enjoy watching most of the movie because of the unpredictable nature of off-road mishaps, heartbreaks, and raw adventure. Sounds fun. Sounds like what me and my husband and his stupid friends do. So, now we know what everyone is watching, but while the film was playing... The moviegoers began to hear and smell something odd coming from the ticket booth located a little ways away from their cars. They began to see smoke filling the air and the sound of a crackling fire. Suddenly, a man rushes to the concession stand and confronts Roger Stotts. The man tells him that the ticket booth is on fire, so in a confused panic, Roger immediately jumps into action. 
As he begins to run towards the booth, Roger sees his mom's car. This is something I've never fucking heard of. I even asked my husband what this was, who is a specifically a station wagon fanatic slash car fanatic in general. Um, it is a 1974, well, granted he isn't like super into American cars, but whatever. 1974 AMC Hornet about. I looked it up. It's a pretty cool car. I may post it on Instagram. I may not, it may not be relevant. I don't know. There weren't a lot of photos regarding this case besides the guy who did it. So whatever, not relevant. Um, so Roger sees his mom's car, this 1974 Hornet near the ticket booth. And there is some random guy moving around inside his mom's car. Roger gets right up to the car and looks inside. He sees his mom's purse on the front seat and the stranger is just sitting there in the driver's seat, not moving. To me, that's just such a creepy image. I don't know, like there's so much chaos going on and then this guy is just staring straight ahead, not giving a fuck, being super weird, but he did it. The ticket booth is still up in flames and Roger yells at this guy, what's happening? And the guy responds with, I'm looking for someone. (laughs) Right. The man leaves it at that, as you do, and begins to drive off. But he drives in the direction of the screen at the drive-in theater, making it seem like he's going to go watch the fucking movie that's playing. You know, casual. Roger is super confused, as anyone probably would be. This whole exchange for him was a total mindfuck. He's thinking, like, where's my mom? Why is this dude driving my mom's car with her stuff in it? Why is the ticket booth on fire? All of this is just happening at once, and he's freaking out. Meanwhile, several drive-in patrons head over to the ticket booth to see what the deal is. They notice the flames are increasing and the fire is getting worse and worse. Some of them even try to open the door to the booth, but it's locked. Plus, it's too hot to really touch to be opened manually anyway. So some motherfucker gets smart and calls the police and fire department. At this point, everyone was really hoping that Betty had made it out of the ticket booth before it caught on fire, but they were worried that she may have gotten stuck inside and was incapacitated while the fire was burning away. Half of the audience was oblivious to the fire at the booth, and they carried on watching the film, which is weird in itself, how so much stuff could be happening and you are completely unaware. Um, But the other half that was closer to the booth was gradually getting more worried as the fire obviously, you know, was getting more intense. Finally, emergency services arrive and begin to assess the scene. Roger approaches the police and explains to them that his mom was working inside the ticket booth that night, but he wasn't sure if she was still in there or perhaps, you know, she had gotten out and was just missing or somewhere else on the theater grounds. He also tells them about the weirdo inside of his mother's car. He isn't sure where the car is in the midst of all the other cars on the lot, but nonetheless, he is able to tell them what his mom's car looks like and what the man looked like to the best of his abilities. While the police begin to search through the sea of cars still at the theater looking for this man, the fire department is having a really hard time gaining access inside the booth. I don't, I don't understand why it's never really explained. I don't understand why they can't just break down the structure because it's only made of glass and metal, but what do I know? Um, it could make it worse. Maybe they're trying to ensure if it is a crime scene, you know, that they're doing everything they can to preserve it. I'm not sure. Um, but I mean, at the same time, if there's a possibility of of helpless life inside, I feel like that's a bad call. But again, what do I know? I'm not a fucking firefighter. Uh, according to the police and arson reports, the owner, this is stupid, the owner of the theater actually had to be called to come and unlock the ticket booth with his key. 
that's just bizarre to me. Like, I just, I don't know. I don't know why they didn't just try and bust down the windows and doors to confirm Betty was in there or not. But regardless, we will find out soon enough. The owner, a man named Howard Hagel, Forensic Files, comes and unlocks the booth for the police and firefighters. When they opened the door to the booth at the time, they couldn't be 100% certain, but responders found what would be the body of what most likely was Betty Stotts, at least based on the person's stature. The person's face was burned beyond all recognition. Um, that's such a cliche phrase, but it's the truth. Um, the police and firefighters enter inside the booth and see that not only was there a deceased person inside the structure, but there is a ton of debris everywhere. Several chairs, a telephone book, a clipboard, etc. All these things were completely charred. At this point, Roger was separated from the scene and placed into the back of a police cruiser for safety purposes. And the remainder of Betty's children and family were gradually being notified of what happened to her. Once the fire is out and the ticket booth has been assessed, Betty's remains would be taken to the morgue for examination while law enforcement and the fire department began to go through all of the debris left in the booth. Investigators were able to determine that the fire had started in the southwest corner of the little kiosk. Everything inside the booth, including Betty, was black and covered in ash. The only items left seemingly untouched, this is kind of fucking spooky, you guys, was Betty's notebook that she carried with her at all times, as well as her Bible. Literally pieces of paper, you know, one of the most flammable substances on the planet is left unburned. Spooky. Love it. While the arson investigators are doing their thing, police are attempting to track down this male subject that Roger described seeing moments before he saw the ticket booth inundated with flames. Police are easily able to locate the AMC Hornet, it's a very specific vehicle, uh, that belonged to Betty in the theater lot. The man was still sitting inside the car and casually watching the movie. The police approach the man and immediately smell alcohol on his breath, and they can tell he is out of it. He is just totally spaced out, looking into the distance at the screen, which I guess that's kind of what you look like when you're watching a movie, but I guess he was extra spacey. The officers ask the guy what he's doing in the car and why he is in possession of it. He responds, stating that the car belongs to a woman that he met at the concession stand while at the drive-in that night. This is awesome. He furthers in his statements, uh, or he he furthers his statement with, quote, you know, I'm just trying to get a little cool guy for sure. The police weren't buying it. Plus, he was obviously intoxicated or at least had been drinking, so the man was detained and the police began to search Betty's car for evidence of anything suspicious. They find her purse. All of its contents were dumped out onto the passenger side of the vehicle. They also locate a bloody ivory-handled pocket knife, around $600 of blood-stained cash, a set of keys, a red coin purse, and a gas receipt. Just before midnight, the man was officially identified by Roger Stotts as the man who he saw in his mother's car earlier that night, and he was arrested. The strung-out stranger was 29-year-old Randy Wools. Two O's and two L's, if you can believe that. Randy Wools. Back at the morgue, the medical investigation into Betty's death gets underway. To everyone's surprise, Betty didn't simply die from being inside the ticket booth when it was set ablaze. Rather, Betty was killed through a combination of fatal wounds. She was struck in the head with a heavy object, fracturing her skull. She had her throat slit three times. She was also stabbed several times. 
She was beaten with a metal instrument all over her body. She suffered carbon monoxide poisoning, and she was severely burned across her entire body. This reminds me a little of um, Jacqueline Michelle Graham's murder, not necessarily in the actual events or methods of murder, but just simply in the fact that they were both subjected to such overkill and multiple forms of fatal assault. I don't know. I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, so not long after the murder took place, police began to get some answers regarding the crime scene. Arson investigators, like we kind of explained, or we, me, I don't know, I kind of explained, um, were able to determine, you know, where the fire originated, things like that. But they were also able to determine that an accelerant was not used to ignite or fuel the fire set in the ticket booth. Additionally, police were able to find that the money they found with Randy, the bloody, you know, $600, was actually stolen from the ticket booth cash drawer. What makes this case all the more eerie is that witnesses at the movie theater told police after the fact that Randy actually sold them their ticket to the movie that night. One of them even noticed that there was smoke coming from inside the booth when Randy was exchanging their money for a ticket. Randy had claimed, oh, it was an electrical short and they were working on getting it fixed. Meanwhile, Betty was already beaten and dying and Randy probably realized, oh fuck, the line of cars is getting longer and piling up. Maybe I'll just sell these tickets until the movie starts and then start the fire or get rid of the evidence or whatever his thought process was. To me, this aspect of the crime becomes very important later when his defense claim is brought forward. Um, I think that him knowing, and maybe this is a little questions and theories too early, but I think that him knowing that he has to pretend to be, you know, filling in for Betty as a ticket booth employee until the rush of cars dissipates shows that he was very aware of what was happening and what he was doing. Furthermore, while him lighting the booth on fire is idiotic, and if anything, it drew more attention to he and Betty, Randy still lit the fire to cover up evidence, which again, I mean, I would assume that was what his purpose was for. I'm not in his mind, but which again shows a very active and deliberate cognitive process. And moreover, he stole her vehicle and parked it right in the middle of the drive-in to maintain being inconspicuous. If that's not aware of what the fuck you're doing, I don't know what is, but uh, he will claim otherwise. When police ask him what happened that night at the theater, Randy says he can't remember anything. How convenient, right? Well, this is most likely due, this is the first, you guys, this is most likely due to the fact that this motherfucker had injected himself 40 times or more with syringes of liquid Valium that he had stolen from a veterinarian clinic during a burglary. He denies being involved with Betty's murder or the arson or any part of the tragedy at the theater. Uh, okay. So without much more to go on, the police seize Randy's clothes due to the fact that there is some blood on them and he's denied bond and scheduled to sit in jail while the police keep investigating. Randy is able to contact his wife and his attorney as well. His wife pretty much tells him to kick rocks and doesn't want to help him. Good for you, girl. To ensure that they 100% have the right guy, the police do a full investigation into the hours leading up to Randy murdering Betty. So, I mean, just because he has his car, has her car, you know, they want to make sure like just because he maybe stole the car doesn't mean he lit the fire, doesn't mean he killed her, but like most likely he did, but let's just 
you know, make sure before we take this to court, right? Which is great police work, as you should do. Be 100% certain. Randy supposedly spent most of the afternoon at a park with two of two of his friends drinking beer. And at some point they decided to go to the drive-in a bit of a Sunday fucking fun day. It is Randy with his two friends who are a couple and the couple's kids in total. It's five of them. Plus Randy, the couple drives separately from Randy, but they all make it to the drive-in theater. At some point though, Randy walks off and they never see him again. More confusion, however, in this like group of friends is that the group was waiting to meet up with another friend. His name was Ron, different from the Ron Stotts mentioned at the beginning of the story. Ron tells police that shortly after he arrived to the theater, he greets his friends, including Randy. But before he could say hello, he saw Randy walking towards the entrance of the drive-in, holding a fucking tire iron. Ron confronts Randy and says, uh, hey, where are you going? What are you doing? And Randy says that he is going down the street to fix his flat tire, even though Ron can clearly see Randy's car just a little ways off in the distance, not down the street like Randy claims. Ron just lets it go and doesn't question Randy. Obviously, something is off and Ron doesn't want to make things worse with Randy. Again, this is just another moment where I think Randy's brain is functioning just fucking fine. Maybe not correctly, (laughs) but it's working. He knows he's about to go into the ticket booth and injure or kill anyone who gets in his way. He makes a conscious decision to take a weapon, lie to his friend Ron about what he's doing, even though it's very obvious what he's not going to be doing, even though what he's lying about, and heads toward the booth. Police theorized that when the group of friends entered the line to get tickets to the movie, Randy saw Betty. He saw her size and her potential vulnerability. He also saw how many cars were at the movie that night. Popular fucking movie. They believe that Randy used some simple math and calculated how many cars were there, the number of people in those cars, and how much it cost per ticket and realized, hey, there might be some cash in that ticket booth worth checking out slash slitting someone's throat over. So after the barging into the booth, Randy bashes Betty's head in with a tire iron. And at this point, she is on the ground and struggling. This is when he has his, oh, fuck, there are cars and people lining up for this movie. I guess I have to act like I work here and sell some shit moment. During this, Randy manages to stab Betty repeatedly, obviously slit her throat and set her on fire. He takes the cash from the cash register and proceeds to her vehicle where he accidentally, completely happenstance, meets up with her son, Roger. The police are continuing to build their case against Randy Wools, but in the meantime, the Stotts family is going through the grieving process of losing Betty. One of Betty's children recalls that her death occurred during the time when supporting your friends or family through a death was when you simply brought over a casserole and said you were sorry for your loss, and that was about it. One of Betty's sons, Ron, remembers that he was just so sick of seeing this you know, revolving door of community members coming through their home. He, he appreciated the, you know, the sympathy and the, and the casseroles, I guess, but he was just, it was so upsetting, and he didn't know how to properly grieve, and he was just taking it day by day. But um, after one day, he decides, you know what, I'm going to go to the back room of my family's home. He's not living there at that point, but he just goes, picks a back room and starts to play guitar and decompress for a bit. It is at this moment when this case 
takes what I would call somewhat of a, a paranormal turn. Um, I don't know how what other word to put on it, um, but I love it. it. It's super fun. As Ron is sitting on the bed in the room that he is in, he claims he hears his mom begin to speak to him. Betty began to tell Ron to go into her bedroom and to locate something that she had set aside for him. He says that he was immediately drawn to this set of desk drawers, and when he went to reach for the top drawer, he hears his mom say, no, not that one, the next one. So he pulls open the second drawer. Inside the drawer and under some old newspapers were handwritten letters Betty had written to each member of her immediate family. Upon reading his letter... Ron soon realized that these were farewell letters to everyone she was close to. And not only that, but these letters were written within days of Betty's murder. Betty, it seems, knew that something bad was going to happen to her. This could tie back to her being open to so many things in life and so many spiritual practices. But according to her friends and family, she also just had an uncanny sense of intuition. Her journal and these letters to her family are so conveniently coincidental that it cannot be explained. So we know the letters she had waiting for her her family members were odd, but one of the final journal entries in the journal that, remember, was one of the only items to fucking survive the fire in the ticket booth reads as follows. The burning and cutting of oneself for natural self is sorrow, and when it's all gone, the higher self is left. This is the last I will write to express myself. Spooky. I'll give my opinion on this during questions and theories. Unfortunately, the good old 1979 media jumps on this aspect of the case and runs with it. The small Kerrville community almost retaliates against dead-ass Betty for these letters and journal entries because in their super religious minds, they now believed that Betty was having premonitions about her death and in turn, they were calling her a witch and that she deserved to die because she was practicing dark magic by having these premonitions. Some even said that she got what she deserved because witches get burned. I just have no comment on that. Um, that is, I guess I do. That is so small minded and absurd. Fuck those people, especially because these letters and her journal are all real proven pieces of evidence. Intuition is also very real in my opinion. And what happened to her and how she was murdered was extremely real. I I don't understand why people are being so lame about this. What does being a witch or getting what she deserves have anything to do with her death? Literally, go bite a fucking curb. But that's just me. So back to this piece of shit, Randy. Who really was this Randy Wool's character, okay? Randy Lynn, as I should be calling him, Randy Lynn Wool's had been a construction worker in Medina. Uh, Medina? Medina? Now I'm questioning myself. Throughout his 20s, he also had a decent criminal history, that of which he blamed on drugs every single time. I love these. Okay. So his previous convictions included burglary, auto theft, burglary with intent to commit theft. So he almost stole something, uh, sale of marijuana, burglary at night, love the specificity there and another auto theft. So clearly stealing cars and stealing from people is his bag. Nothing super violent though. So that's also interesting. 
Um, additionally, Randy would claim he was a ninth grade dropout and he was introduced to drugs when he was just 13 years old. After he was arrested, Randy immediately retained an attorney. They had a plan of defense that I wouldn't say was necessarily strong, um, but it did have some decent mitigating factors. Unfortunately, however, those factors also worked in the aggravating category as well, in my opinion. Um, his attorney held a press conference that, again, in my opinion, really backfired. His lawyer told the public that Randy had been a habitual drug user for years and years, and he had even tortured animals in his past. <laughs> not, not great. Additionally, Randy was, to put it lightly, a racist. He had swastika tattoos and was known to be an extreme bigot. If your attorney is is giving press releases about this shit, good luck in trial, homie. Like, my God. Randy's attorney attempted to humanize him by telling the public and the jury how Randy was a married father and was simply a misunderstood drug addict who needed help. Research into this case showed that no one is really sure of Randy's entire past, there doesn't seem to be any documentation regarding his upbringing or his family life before he dropped out of school, like he claims. But I think it's safe to say it may not have been the best due to what kind of man he developed into, but who knows? So if you're counting, he's got two out of the three of the McDonald triad, which is a bad look. Plus, you know, we don't know. He could have pissed the bed growing up and He'd have all three, and then he'd be this textbook example of a likely undiagnosed psychopath. So that's good news. Anyhow, Randy is officially charged with robbery, burglary, arson, and capital fucking murder. If only he'd raped her, then he would have committed like all of the FBI's violent felonies in one go. You know, wouldn't that have been fun? Uh, unsurprisingly, Randy enters a plea of not guilty big, big shock. Randy's defense was that he, quote, flipped out on drugs and he couldn't remember what he did and had no idea why he would have because he was, quote, out of my mind. This is a great defense, super great defense. Um, there was so much publicity and media coverage by the time Randy went to trial that there was actually a change of venue, not surprising. Luckily, though, Randy was found guilty and sentenced to death. His response to receiving the death penalty was, quote, I guess it's showtime. Like, what? The coolest fucking guy. Like, what, who, why are we even killing him? He's so cool. He's the kind of guy who says dumb phrases like, I'll sleep when I'm dead, man. Like, go away, you fucking loser. <clears throat> anyway, sorry. Um, during his automatic appeals process, Randy is quoted as saying, I am being executed for a crime I can't remember committing. I was slipped out on drugs. I don't know what is supposed to be done with me. I don't know whether I deserve a life sentence. I feel like death is a little severe for something that was a mistake. <clears throat> Literally suck a dick. That's what they all say, but fine. They said, I beat this woman down with a tire tool, cut her throat. Then I piled everything in the booth on top of her and set it on fire. Then while the booth is on fire, I'm sitting there selling tickets to people coming into the show. Then I get in the car, drive inside the show, and I'm sitting inside the car when the cops get there. It's obvious I was totally out of my mind. Like, thanks for the recap, Randy. No one cares at all. 
Randy was originally scheduled for execution on July 10th, 1984, but he was finally set to be executed on August 20th, 1986. He was 36 years old at the time of his execution and was transported from the Ellis unit to the Walls unit, which housed the death chamber. Guess what, guys? We have a final meal request. It's been a while. He gets, you know, nothing too exciting. The standard two cheeseburgers, french fries, and a nice tea. Not mad about that one. Probably the only good decision he ever made. According to Murderpedia, Randy Wools had two personal witnesses. I've never seen this listed anywhere else, doc- like documented-wise. So they wrote that he had two personal witnesses at his execution were his aunt, June Hind Mills, and his cousin, Natrona Mills forensic files Natrona what um his wife didn't even come (laughs) lol good for her during his execution Randy actually had to assist the execution staff in finding a vein because of how hard his drug use was in the past they spent quite a while trying to locate um a usable vein but he finally had to say hey here you know this is how you tap into a vein over here which you know isn't really what you want in the midst of an execution you kind of want this guy to still remain a piece of shit and not acting like a human assisting in his own death. I think that was an odd moment for people and prison staff, psychologically at least. Um, Nevertheless, the drug was pushed through his veins through a spot on his scarred arms. The needle was inserted near a tattoo of a buzzard grasping at a syringe and next to a swastika and a grim reaper. Cool. Again, cool guy. In his last statements, he said, I'd like to say goodbye to my family. I love them all. I'd like to tell the people fighting the death penalty to continue their work. Yeah, I bet. Uh, I'm sorry about the victim and family, and I wish there was some way I could make it right. That's literally what he said. Like, go die. Go die. Thank you so much. And that is the murder of Betty Stotts. Fuck you, Randy Wools. And on to questions and theories. Number one, perhaps the biggest question for me was, did he really not remember anything? I think the fact will never truly be known, um, but it really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, I think that he showed intent in every action that he did, and that speaks volumes. The, The violence and overkill he enacted upon Betty was just unconscionable. Whether Randy remembers what he did or not doesn't really matter, To me, at least, his drug and alcohol abuse are not an excuse. If anything, they could have been triggers enabling and assisting him in committing such a violent murder. Um, But, you know, I also question that theory, because if he was high on volume all day from shooting up 40 plus syringes, then why had he only acted violent at that point at the theater and not at any other point in the day? To me, that shows he could just be a violent man who has such a high drug tolerance And he can hold his shit together and act natural and calm and lie to people's faces all the while committing a heinous murder for drug money. I don't know. I'm kind of torn. Number two, in my research for this case, it was mentioned that an overuse of a drug or mixing a drug with other substances can cause an opposite effect. For instance, Valium is supposed to have a relaxing effect and it's supposed to assist with, you know, anxiety slash panic disorders, among other things. If you ingest too much or ingest any amount improperly and mix it with alcohol or other drugs, it can have the reverse effect and cause someone to have, you know, the, an opposite reaction. 
This can include, you know, low impulse control and hostility among other negative side effects. This has been posited, you know, as a reason for his unusually violent behavior. However, Randy has blamed his entire criminal history on drug use, so I'm not sure if he's just a criminal with a substance abuse problem or if he becomes a criminal due to his substance abuse problem. I don't know. Number three, like I mentioned, if he has this long history of drug and alcohol abuse, then maybe he committed the robbery and murder for money to support his drug habit. I know heroin was on its way out and cocaine was coming back into fashion as the 1980s approached, but still, if you were subjecting your body to essentially an animal tranquilizer rather than buying a drug with a similar effect, then you've probably got a big fucking problem on your hands. I think he really may not remember doing what he did because he was so fucked up that night, but I think he still committed those actions with extreme intent every step of the way, whether he can recall it or not, or whether they were done with the assistance of liquid Valium and beer or not. Number four, uh, what I found interesting is that he went to the movie with a group of friends and their children. Were the parents not worried about their kids being around Randy, especially if they knew about his drug use? Were they drug users too, so they thought nothing of it? Also, he was a known racist and bigot. That's a huge fucking red flag, just like being a drug addict. Why would anyone be friends with someone that outward, that was outwardly and overtly racist, let alone let their children be around this man? I think that that friendship situation is interesting, but it also may be irrelevant. I don't know. Number five, the letters to the kids and final notebook entries. I don't know what to think of these. Um, perhaps they were just pre-written letters because Betty and Joe's anniversary was coming up. Um, I don't know if I mentioned that, uh, that Joe, it was their 25th anniversary the next day and um, he never got over it. So she was murdered and then they celebrated, air quotes, celebrated their 25th anniversary um, so maybe she just wrote these, you know, letters to them. She wanted to write something special for each person to celebrate their marriage or something. I don't know. That's kind of weird. I don't know why you would write your kids letters about your marriage or in celebration of your marriage, but maybe I also think that Betty was incredibly sensitive and emotional. And if she was that in touch with herself and her family, through, you know, different religious and spiritual practices, then I wouldn't be shocked if she decided to preemptively write these, you know, somewhat somber letters to her family. It seems like an emo thing to do, but Betty seemed kind of emo, but like in a cool way. So I don't know if I buy into the whole, she had a premonition about her death, but I'm also fine if she did because visions are fucking rad. I'm all about it. I also think that her, her last entry mentioned cutting and burning of oneself. And I, I don't know if I should take that as maybe she was, um, you know, having some issues with self-harm and it was just coincidental that she was cut and burned to death. I don't know. It's, um, it almost seems like she could have been a bit suicidal, but at the same time, everyone said she seemed fine. So I don't really know. I'm not sure if it was just the biggest coincidence of all time that she was having these really bad depressive episodes. She was writing these letters to her family saying she was going to go, you know, away and she was saying farewell and, you know, ending her journal entries. You know, the, the saddest people can sometimes be the most happy people on the outside. Does that make sense? Um, you wouldn't know. But 
anyway, that's just my opinion. I'm not, I'm still on the fence about that one. Either way, I'm fine with it. I hope, hope that she wasn't suicidal. It's unfortunate that she was murdered anyway. Um, but I feel like the letters in the note, the notebook entries are add a fun kind of twist to the story. Anyway, as Cassie and I, uh, next one, sorry, (laughs) number six, as Cassie and I have discussed on the podcast before, we are really not supportive of the death penalty. Um, While there are probably hundreds of people who might deserve to die for their crimes, there are also hundreds of people who have been executed for crimes they did not commit. And until we can get that process a little more secure and reliable, then I'm going to support wasting tax dollars and keeping everyone in prison instead of wasting tax dollars on the poison to kill potentially innocent people. However, this guy, Randy Lynn Wools, I think uh, the jury got the sentencing right on that one. I wasn't on that jury so I, I, I didn't have a choice in that, but I'm going to say I will pat you on the back, jury member. I, I don't blame you for what you chose. Fuck you, Randy Wools. Um, P.S. If you email me about the death penalty, I will not respond. It's my podcast. Go away. Number seven, lastly, what, he, uh, what did he use to start the fire? This is a big question for me. What did he actually use to start the fire and make it spread so quickly and effectively? The investigators determined where the fire originated, but it could not be determined what, you know, incendiary device was used or how it was spread without fuel or other accelerant. I'd like to know. Lighters, matches, magic, what was it? Maybe it was mentioned elsewhere and I just don't know, but it would be, um, you know, fun fact. Anyways, that's it. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I've got more murders coming your way. If you have any suggestions, I'm always open to receiving them. Send me an email at texas1031podcast at gmail.com, all spelled out, no numbers, all letters, if you uh, want to recommend a case. I may or may not choose to cover it, but I'm happy to take the recommendation. So um, yeah, we will be back at some point with more Texas True Crime. And if anyone is listening, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.